we'll be reading from John 16 today. Please turn to me with me to John 16. It's in the back of the Bible. <laughs> all right. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away. The helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. You are a good, good God, and you do good, Lord, and I pray that you would teach us your ways, Lord, that our hearts would hunger and thirst after righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with this spirit, your spirit, God, and that today in this room, uh, maybe even for the first time, all of us would know you more, know you deeply, know this spirit, God, that brings judgment, that brings truth, that brings life, Father. I pray that you'd bless Glory as he preaches your word, Father. I pray that your spirit would be with him, Lord. And I thank you, Father. I thank you for not leaving us as orphans, but you actually said it is better for me to go so that you have this spirit. You are enough, Lord. Your provision is thorough, and may we understand it more and love you more and know you more. In the precious name of Jesus, by the blood of the Lamb, amen. Good morning. My name is Corey Tellman. I live in South Hadley with my wife, Kate, my son, Benji, and I've been at Mercy House for about 15 years. Um, it's my honor to preach the next sermon in our series here on John chapter 16. Let me pray, and we'll take a look at it. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time today to explore it, to be shaped by it. 
God, I pray that you will be preparing all of our hearts to receive your word, that you will be um, turning us into people who reflect you a little bit more today, that you will be opening our eyes to the life that you offer us, to the good things that you hold for us. I pray for myself, will you <laughs> make my words right and powerful and help everyone here to hear what it is that you have to say in the, the things that I've prepared today, God. I offer all of this time up to you, Lord, for your purposes and your glory. We love you, Lord. Amen. So, if you'd like to follow along with me, you can grab a Bible from under a nearby seat and turn to John 16, 1 through 15. If you don't know where that is, there is a table of contents at the beginning of the book. So we've been hearing this summer about this section of the Gospel of John and how it's Jesus' last words to his disciples before his crucifixion and death. He's leaving them with words of encouragement for some hard times ahead, which is why the title of our sermon series is Take Heart. We've covered how Jesus teaches us that to follow him is to know him, and to know him is to know God, God the Father and God the Son. We've talked a bit about this concept of the Trinity, one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jake gave us some teaching on the Holy Spirit a few weeks ago, for which I'm grateful. And we've also seen a call to abide in this God by following Jesus and obeying him. We've also been told that we're not just servants of God, but heard the amazing message that we can be his friends. Last week, Mike walked us through the section where Jesus explains that the world hates him, explaining that the phrase the world in John refers to our human society and systems that were created by God and yet are in rebellion against him. Jesus told his disciples that they too would be hated by the world and that they will be persecuted. Our passage today begins by wrapping up these thoughts about the world's hatred and persecution before returning to the theme of the Holy Spirit. So, what does this next passage add to this discourse? To sum it up, I think the message today is everything is going to be all right, but not necessarily in the way that you expect it. Here's what I mean. Imagine that you need to borrow a car, and I'm going to lend you mine. Actually, let's imagine that I'm going to lend you the car that my wife had for the first few years of our marriage, her 1986 Honda Civic CRX. Tiny, white, rusty, stick shift, top of the engine had very proudly written on it, digital fuel injection. It was really, really fun to drive. Now, besides the obvious being a stick shift, if you were going to borrow this car, there would be a few things that you would need to know. I'd let you know that the air conditioning doesn't work, so you're going to have to roll down the window if it gets hot. I'd let you know that it has like a 20 CD changer behind the passenger seat, but that also doesn't work, so you're stuck with the radio. But the really weird and slightly worrying thing that this car would do uh, is sometimes when it was idling, it would start rhythmically revving, like just sitting there at a stoplight. Vroom, vroom, vroom. First time it did this, I thought surely it was about to blow up. But we had it checked out, and it seemed fine. So it was okay. So if I was going to loan this car to you, I'd want to give you a heads up. Hey, just so you know, sometimes when it's in neutral, the engine just starts revving. 
It's nothing to worry about, and as soon as you put it in gear, it'll work normally, right? I'd let you know ahead of time that something could seem like a problem, but really, it's going to be all right. How does this compare to what Jesus is telling his disciples? Jesus begins in verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Okay, I take the phrase falling away to mean giving up, losing faith, or running away and hiding. He's telling them something to keep them from falling away. So he's letting them know that something is coming which looks scary but is actually okay, so don't go running off. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. All right, yeah, that's bad. Being put out of the synagogue will likely mean rejection by friends and family. But more than that, you know, in my daily life, the news that I'm going to be killed doesn't fit into a message that things are going to be all right. That's kind of the definition of not all right. And that's not even his focus. His point is actually on the fact that those doing this are going to think that they're doing the right thing for God, which means he's just taking it for granted that they're going to be killed. This is more like if you were borrowing my car and I said, hey, this, the AC doesn't work and you can only listen to the radio and whenever the brakes fail, just drop it into a lower gear and look for a place where you can coast uh, to a stop. Don't worry, it'll be fine. You'd say, whenever? Whenever the brakes fail? How often do the brakes fail? Brakes failing while I'm driving is not going to be fine. Jesus is like this. Hey guys, whoever kills you is going to think they're offering service to God, but don't worry, there's no need to run away. The fact that Jesus says this here and frames it as advance warning for the purpose of keeping them from falling away means that he thinks he's offering an encouragement or at least saying this problem is not insurmountable. So the question is this, how would Jesus have to see this situation? What would he have to believe in order for him to believe that this is good news? From here, he'll wrap up these thoughts in verse 4 by again emphasizing that this is advanced warning. I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And then he goes on to talk about how he's going to go away and the Holy Spirit will come. In his discussion of the Holy Spirit, I think we're going to see a pattern that helps us make sense of these first few verses too, which is this. When your hope is in the good things that you see in this world, losing them seems disastrous. But God offers us hope so much bigger, so much more powerful, that we can lose the things we cherish now and still say, we're going to be all right. So Jesus begins this next section by saying that he's going away. Verse 5, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus has been saying this a bunch, that he's going away, he'll go where people can't follow him, soon you won't see me, and so on. And he observes here that his disciples are sad. No kidding. They think they're losing him. Even if they don't know exactly how or when, the one thing that's clear is that Jesus is going to go away. But then he tells them in verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage 
that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So here's the part where Jesus points to something bigger. We've come across this word helper before. It's the Greek word parakletos, describing a figure that we've seen referred to as the comforter, the advocate, or the spirit of truth. We identify this with the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. And Jesus says that the coming of the helper is going to be a big deal. Such a big deal that it's totally worth the loss that they're facing. Now the next section, I think, explains a bit about what's going to happen when the Holy Spirit arrives. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict the world about three things and offers a little explanation of why the Spirit will convict about those things. So in verse 8, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged, this word convict is the Greek word elegho, meaning to uh, prove something wrong, correct, or rebuke. So in all these areas, Jesus says the world is in need of correction, and the Holy Spirit will offer the correcting rebuke. So part one, sin. Sin, if you're not familiar with the term, is that which separates us from God. It's a Greek term, hamartia, referring to an arrow that has missed the mark, very similar to our word err, as in the saying, to err is human. So sin is our separation from God, stemming from attitudes and behaviors that don't match up to God's character and design for us. So the Holy Spirit will rebuke the world regarding sin because, Jesus says, they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit will bring to light that the world's ideas of sin are wrong, implying that belief in Jesus gives us a right understanding of sin, while unbelief leaves us with a muddy picture of sin and therefore no ability to escape its weight. Next, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, what do these two things have to do with one another? What's clear is that Jesus in his physical body will no longer be here walking around on earth or sitting in the room with the disciples. Instead, he'll be somewhere else with God the Father. What's less clear is why this is an explanation for the fact that God the Holy Spirit will be convicting the world of righteousness. Here's a few ways that you could read the relationship between these two things. First, Jesus is talking about the completion of his work. When Jesus goes to the Father, it's because his work on earth will have been completed. He will have been crucified, died, risen from the dead, and then gone to the Father. With these things accomplished, Jesus achieves a righteousness that can be offered to all humanity. So if you see going to the Father as like the finish line for his work, this makes sense because he's saying that there will only be righteousness once he has gone to the Father. A second possible interpretation, that Jesus is talking about intercession, what Jesus will be doing before the Father is interceding for us who have believed in him. And the Father will count Jesus' righteousness as our own. Thus, there will be righteousness in this world, ours, through the righteousness of Jesus. And third, Jesus may be talking about sanctification. 
It's a fancy word for the long, hard road of turning away from the things that separate us from God and towards thoughts and actions that are consistent with his character and design for us. When we entrust ourselves to Jesus, in a sense, we suffer, die, and are raised to life with him. When that happens, we still sin, but the Holy Spirit begins a work of transformation in us. Ask any of us who are Christians, and we can tell you about how the Spirit has convicted us of sin in our lives and nudged us or shoved us toward a rejection of that sin, building some kind of righteousness in our lives. The Holy Spirit then can point to the transformation in order to contrast the world's concept of righteousness with the reality in our lives. So the text isn't explicit about the link between Jesus going to the Father and the Holy Spirit convicting the world, but there's three ideas that I think are biblically sound, true things uh, that might be what Jesus is referring to in this passage. In any case, the result will be that the Spirit will have some kind of rebuke for the world regarding the mismatch between the world's sense of righteousness and the righteousness that Jesus accomplishes through the cross. Finally, this section ends with the phrase concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. That phrase, ruler of this world, you might think applies to God as the world's creator, but actually it's used a bunch in the Bible to refer to the one we might call the devil, the one who leads rebellion against God. This ruler, this prince of the world, doesn't measure up to God's righteousness, and the world he leads doesn't measure up either. God has judged the devil to be lacking in righteousness, and this judgment will be brought to light by the Holy Spirit. Which, by the way, when we start getting into talking about judgment, sin, and the devil, uh, these are not widely accepted ideas around here. Uh, people can get worked up by talk of judgment, but can we agree that the world is lacking in righteousness? I think we'd get a lot of people signing on to that statement. So when you keep that in mind, this may not sound so weird. This world is dark. It is not filled with righteousness. If the Almighty God has some judgment stored up for it, that might actually sound like good news. So in summary, the world bears the weight of its sin because it doesn't believe in Jesus. Those who do believe in Jesus are counted righteous because of his intercession, and the Holy Spirit will witness to the world that there is judgment for this world at the highest levels. So this is the good news. We don't have to bear the weight of our sin and only need to believe in Jesus to receive his righteousness. So, what does the Holy Spirit have to do with this? So first, you know, the Holy Spirit can remind you of these things. When you feel convicted, accused, if you feel like you're carrying the weight of your sin on your shoulders, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit can remind you that the Father sees the righteousness of Jesus in your place. So take heart. Second, this whole three-point structure we just worked through is followed by one more thing. See verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
Okay, so for one, the Spirit brings us knowledge. Jesus stakes a bold claim that the Holy Spirit will guide his disciples into all the truth. But not just that. In the same way that Jesus has emphasized the oneness of the Father and Son in this book, he's now rolling the Spirit in with that. Everything that is the Father's is given to Jesus. And everything that Jesus has, he gives to the Spirit. And then the Spirit gives it to us. In this way, our relationship with the Spirit doesn't just tell us things about the world, which would be cool anyways. Our relationship with the Spirit tells us things about God. It is a means by which we enter into a deep and intimate relationship with God. And this is why this is good. Because it seems like the best thing is to have Jesus with you in the flesh. How many people have said or thought that they would believe in God if he only showed up and they could see him? There he was, in a human body, hanging out in a room with the disciples, eating with them, talking with them. The relationship they had with Jesus was an almost unheard of level of intimacy with God in the Jewish tradition. Jesus had called them friends. Do you know how rare that is in the Jewish tradition? I know of two people called friends of God. That's Abraham and Moses, maybe Job. But Moses is the guy who hangs out with God. Bible says, talking with him as a friend. And when he did, his face glowed and the Israelites told him to wear a veil because it freaked them out. This kind of thing was not normal. Being as close to God as the disciples were now, sorry, now we're with Jesus, was a very, very special experience. But Jesus is telling them that there is something even greater, even more intimate on offer. The Spirit will come and will reside with them and in them. And that word, intimate, it has some weight, right? To be intimate is to be vulnerable and to be known, and you'd rightly have some caution, maybe even fear around that. Because intimacy is powerful, and that's what's on offer. The Spirit is here, and through the Spirit, the disciples are going to be in an intimate and powerful relationship with God. God the Spirit, God the Father, and God the Son. And so they're not really even losing Jesus. So when we think we've got something good, like having Jesus in the flesh, Jesus points us to something bigger, deeper, and more deeply good. Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. This is so good, it's worth losing the good thing that we have. It's worth losing a face-to-face relationship with Jesus, amazing as that is, because having the Holy Spirit is that good. So let's apply this to the earlier question. Why would Jesus encourage his disciples by telling them they're going to be killed? How could he see that as an encouraging message? It's because Jesus has something greater in mind. In the same way that Jesus, in the flesh, seems like the best and most real way to interact with God, but the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in us is actually the best and most real way to interact with God. Likewise, it seems like the best way to pursue a good life is to stay alive. But actually, 
following Jesus, even at the cost of your life, is the best and eternal life. Now I say best and eternal because I actually think that God's presence, a deep relationship with him, really is its own reward. A short life lived in friendship with God is better than a long life lived without him. But as if that weren't enough, God doesn't just offer a short life in his presence. He offers an eternity in his presence. Thus, Jesus thinks that it is so good to follow him that, even faced with a future in which his disciples will be hunted down and killed, he can still tell them things are going to be all right. This might not make any sense to you. If not, it begs the question, where is your hope? When you picture a future that could be described as everything being all right, what does that look like to you? And on what do you base your hope that you will have that future? If you're not a Christian, you put your hopes and desires somewhere, so where is it? I think most people would probably start with being alive as a good baseline. My dad likes to say, any day you wake up is a good day, right? But I assume you have hopes and desires beyond just being alive, too. Uh, for a lot of people, friends and family are what it's all about. A while ago, I was talking with a customer at work and shared that I had had a son in the last couple years. And he had this little moment of, in his mind, appreciating the significance of that. The significance of that, sorry. Um, he said, well, you know, that's what we live for, is our children. Just nonchalantly dropping a claim about the meaning of life at a wine tasting. That's where he puts his hope and identity, raising his children. And in fact, if you ask most people if there's something worth giving up their life for, chances are they'd say it's friends and family. And we have other good uh, measures of a good life too. Do you think you're doing all right when you make enough money? When you do well at school or in your job? When the world looks like it's on track for better times? These are all pretty common ways a person might define everything being all right. And you know, if you're a Christian, you've decided to follow Jesus with all you've got, you actually might still not be all that different. I've just been sharing my reactions to Jesus' words. Jesus, getting killed isn't all right. But as we slog through this worldly life, isn't it so easy to find ourselves looking to the same measures of success as everybody else? I want to be financially secure. I want to be accepted by my friends and family. Actually, when I picture everything being all right with my life, I picture a beautiful house with a beautiful garden, doing cool, fun stuff with my kid and my wife and my dog, getting together with my friends for the occasional wine dinner. These frequently feel like the measures of my own success in my life. What are yours? It's important to say that none of these things are bad things. They're not bad pursuits. The Bible has plenty of examples of faithful worshipers of God who work jobs, have a nice house and garden, play music, hang out with friends, and so on. These are good things. But where is your hope? Where does Jesus point for hope? Jesus points to God himself. Knowing God. Being God's friend. This is the greatest, deepest, most powerful hope 
he has for us. It is this hope that lets him look even at death and say, it's going to be okay. We may want God to provide the things that we want, but God provides himself. And that is the greatest good he can give us. In the same way that it seems like a good thing to keep Jesus and see him face to face, but it's really better to receive the Holy Spirit. Likewise, it seems good to follow a God that gives us our lives and our desires. But it's really better to follow a God that gives us himself. Consider when you picture a life where everything's all right, a life well lived, a life you would aspire to, and you think about the things that make that life worth living. How many of those things can be taken away from you? Your job? Your family? Your country? Your vision of a just society? None of these things are in your hands. You know what can't be taken from you? God's loving relationship with you. There is no power in the universe that can keep the creator away from you. Only in a God outside of humanity, outside of this earth, is it possible for hope to be secure. What does this look like? If you're on board, or at least curious, what does it look like to put your hope in God? Well, it should transform every part of your life, but I'll offer a couple specific ideas. Think about the fact that Jesus thinks he can tell the disciples they'll be killed and that there's still nothing to fear. What could your life be like if you had reason to believe that you'll be all right, even in a situation as extreme as death? Did you know that Christians don't need to get defensive, ever? How often in a week do we get defensive? What makes us defensive? See, Jesus points to something radically disturbing that even if someone comes for your life and succeeds, you're okay. You have an eternity of righteous life lived in the presence and friendship of the creator of the universe. You have that which is most important and it cannot be taken from you. But is that what makes us defensive on a regular basis? I'm going to guess probably not. Think over your last, say, week or two and see if you can remember acting defensive about something. What inspired it? I'm going to take a wild guess that for many of us in the room, it may have been someone criticizing you, even unintentionally. Or someone made life difficult for you. Or maybe you actually did something wrong and got caught. And we try to defend ourselves, shifting blame, offering justifications for our decisions, or the best one, turning the tables and criticizing the other person, questioning their authority and their intentions and their general character. Who do you think you are? We actually don't need to do any of that. If you've never thought about that before, think about that. Next time a boss or colleague or your parent or your child points out something wrong with you, remember, you have the loving acceptance of God who knows what's wrong with you better than anyone else and still loves you. 
The Holy Spirit is there with you to remind you that you have right standing in God's eyes. Someone says there's something wrong with you, you can actually take a clear-eyed look at what they say and consider that they might be right. You have nothing to lose. You have right standing in the eyes of the one who matters. Another place this defensiveness plays out is money. If your hope is in God, then money is in your hands to serve God's purposes, not to save you, not to keep you secure. You can be financially secure. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's the means, not the end. So two diagnostic questions for you. First, how do you feel if you contemplate losing your financial security? It's scary, of course, probably should be. But if your feelings veer from fear into panic, give that up to God. Remind yourself that he is your portion. If it were useful, if it would serve his purposes, you could actually give up all the money, the work, or other resources that make you financially secure. Don't do so for no reason. But my point is that if such a thing happened, you'd be all right. Second, do you give money away? Giving money is one of the basic disciplines of the Christian tradition. It's a practice of letting go of something you think you need. From a worldly perspective, you do need it. Giving money away endangers your financial security. But you entrust it to God by entrusting it to someone else. People who put their hope in God don't shrink back from giving till it hurts giving things up so they can give their money away. Remember, it's going to be all right. Not because God will give you all the money, but because the creator of the universe who holds all things in his hands is your friend, and you get to hang out in his kingdom forever. Remember, Christ already laid down his life. Those who were seeking to kill him, thinking they were serving God, they did it. They succeeded. Jesus' words we've just been studying happened on the last night before he was arrested and executed. This is what we remember when we do communion, that Jesus' body was broken for us. His blood poured out for us. And what did it accomplish? He made the way for us to know God. He made the way for the Spirit to dwell in us he made the way for us to be counted righteous. And he went to the Father. The disciples didn't see him anymore, but he was with them more deeply than he ever was before. And because he stands before the Father, pleading our case, and because the Spirit is with us, reminding us of that righteousness, we have confidence confidence even to lay our lives down for him. That night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and said, this is my body, broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me, a reminder 
that Jesus has been there before and has triumphed over even death. Surely over all the other things that annoy us and put us on the defensive and make us fear for ourselves. Christ has triumphed. And so every week at Mercy House, we do this. We celebrate communion to remind ourselves of this righteousness that we have through the cross. I'm going to pray for us. Thank you, Lord, so much for your sacrifice. Thank you for your provision of yourself first and foremost and the good things that you let us have and hold. Thank you that you have sent your Son. Thank you that you have come as the Holy Spirit and you dwell with us and in us. And I pray for every one of us today, God, would we feel your presence? Would you remind us of your great love for us? Would you remind us that we put our confidence in you? Thank you, Lord. Amen.